The scripture reading this morning is from Numbers chapter 14, verses 20 through 38. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, And have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set for the wilderness by way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, that you have said, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you, said you, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years." And you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end. There they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. The men who brought up a bad report about the land died by the plague, died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went out to spy the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. Let's go to the Lord. Our Father, your word is like a two-edged sword. It pierces the skin, and then it pierces the muscles, and then it pierces the bone, and then it divides between marrow and bone. It exposes the secret and and uh, hidden intentions and thoughts of the heart. Your word sometimes stings, Father. Your word sometimes is like the tip of a surgeon's scalpel. And today is one of those kind of Sundays. Today is a message that is meant to cut and to expose for the sake of transformation. And I do pray that you would do that, Father. I do pray that you would come near to us now and confront us with our hearts of grumbling. And I do mean hearts, plural, the, the possibility, the propensity to grumble is in every single one of us. And I pray that you would expose it in love and that you would root it out in love and that you would transform it into thanksgiving in praise in love. Father, please come now. We open ourselves up to your word. We open ourselves up to you, the master surgeon. And we ask you to come now and do what you will in us for the glory of your name and the joy of our souls. In Jesus we pray, amen. God, the Father of Israel, had plans for his people. He had purposes for his people. He had created a destiny for them that they literally could not imagine. No matter what they did, no matter what they dreamed of, no matter how many conversations they have, they literally could not have conceived the things that God meant to do in them and through them. He was excited to bring them into the fullness of what he had planned. And so, when the time was right, he sent a deliverer, Moses, to the land of Egypt to bring them out of the land of slavery and toward the promised land so that they could inherit what he had prepared for them, at least in part in the promised land. But first, 
The Lord needed to accomplish some things in his people, and so, as we've been seeing over the last months, he led them to the foot of a great mountain that we call Mount Sinai, or sometimes in the Bible, it's just called the mountain of the Lord. And there, he revealed his glory to his people, and there he entered into an everlasting covenant with his people, and there he poured mercy upon his people, because you'll remember that in no time at all, his people broke the covenant that God had graciously made with them, and and actually worshipped another God. They essentially cheated on God and violated the marriage between God and his people. But God in his great mercy revealed himself to be merciful and he forgave them for what they did and and they moved on together as a people. And then God gave them the law that was designed to constrain their hearts and constrain their behavior and keep them in that zone where they could be under the blessing of God rather than the curse of God. Where they could be under the smile of God rather than the hot discipline of God. And in all these things at the foot of Mount Sinai, the Lord showed himself to be who he revealed himself to be in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Some of the most important verses in the Bible. He said, I am the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, I am, I am, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now a year had passed and the time had come for Israel to depart from Sinai and to begin the march toward that place that God had prepared, toward that place that he had promised Abraham over 400 years earlier. God began, as you'll remember, by teaching them that in order to come into their destiny, they had to submit to his order in society and in home. They had to pursue his holiness and take seriously the things that he had commanded. They had to receive his blessings so that they could have his power and his protection and his wisdom and his resources and all that to come into the destiny. And then last week, we saw that they had to learn to walk in obedience to the commandments of the Lord. If Israel was only to do this, beloved, then God would bring them into the fullness of what he had prepared and they would come to know a joy that they previously could not even have conceived. And I really mean that. They were a slave people for 400 years. They could not imagine that he was going to make the nation of Israel the nation of nations. He was going to make them the people through whom the Messiah came, the people through whom all the nations of the world could be saved through simple faith in Jesus Christ. They had no idea, but this is the destiny God had designed. Just before Israel set out, you have to get the picture straight in your mind that when they started marching, they were literally only days march away from the southern tip of the promised land. And, uh, and, but we're going to see today that rather than entering into the fullness of the destiny that God had designed for them, that they gave in to grumbling and in this way came to know the discipline of the Lord rather than the pleasure of the Lord. Rather than keeping their eyes fixed on the one who had delivered them from Egypt and had so many plans and purposes for them, They decided to to put their eyes on their circumstances and complain. And then they put their eyes on their leaders and they complained. And then they put their eyes on the obstacles and their enemies and they complained and complained and complained before the Lord and he heard them and he saw them and he was very, very, very displeased with them and he punished them greatly for what they did. The lesson for today, beloved, is somber and it's serious and it's not easy to hear if you take it seriously. Because as I said in my prayer, there's not one of us who is immune from the propensity to grumble. This is in all of us. We're just like the people of Israel. I remember when I was first saved, I read through the Bible. I used to get so frustrated with Israel because I'd be reading and I'd think to myself, how could these people act like that when God had been so gracious to them? And then I walked with the Lord for one year and two years and five years and ten years and I realized that I am them. I am them. It's so easy for me to forget the blessings of God. It's so easy for me to take my eyes off of Jesus and to put them on earthly things and to begin to grumble about things that he himself has provided as a gracious gift for me. And that's a danger. And so, beloved, the message today is about avoiding that way of life and it's about avoiding the consequences that God poured out upon the people of Israel. 
because we're really like them in a lot more ways than we might think we are in the positive sense as well. Even as God had provided a destiny for them, he has provided a destiny for us. I've talked about this the last couple of weeks. There's a promised land for us too, and right now we're heading toward it. We really are. But our promised land isn't about physical property and buildings. Our promised land is about being in the presence of the God who created all things. If you believe in Jesus Christ, one day you will see him face to face who saved you. You will see the angels. You will see the cherubim that have always flown over the throne of God with two wings covering their faces and two wings covering their feet and with two wings they're flying. We will see them. We will see the four living creatures that John saw around the throne of God. We will see the 24 elders that John saw around the throne of God. We will see countless numbers of people from every tribe and tongue and nation in the history of this earth there gathered together and worshiping one King, one Lord, one Savior, one God. We will be one with God and one with each other forever and ever and ever. That's our destiny, beloved. That is our promised land, and right now we are heading toward it. Just like Israel, in order to reach that place, we have to submit to God's order, pursue God's holiness by the grace of Christ. We have to receive God's blessing in Christ to have the power to do what he's called us to do. We have to learn by the grace of Christ to walk in obedience to his commands, or what Paul calls the faith of obedience or the obedience of faith that we come into a saving knowledge of Jesus and then learn day by day by day to submit to him. These things are as important for us as it was for them, beloved. We too must put on the armor of God and fight with all our might to inherit what God has already given to us. That's true. And if we're not careful, we too can give in to the temptations that killed an entire generation of Israel. Oh, I pray that we'll have ears to hear today. Grumbling killed an entire generation of Israel. And if we're not careful, we can fall into that too. We can start grumbling about circumstances, leaders, obstacles, difficulties, challenges, and impugn the Lord our God. There is an antidote to these things, though. There is a way to keep from coming into the tragic consequences of Israel, and the Lord wants that better thing for us. He wants that antidote for us today. And I would simply put it like this. We must learn to fight the fight of faith together every single day, as long as it is called today. As the author of Hebrews says in chapter 3, verse 1, and then in verses 12 and 13, He says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, you who have a heavenly destiny, you who are headed toward the promised land of the presence of Jesus Christ forever, consider Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Put your mind on Jesus and don't let it descend from there. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then in verses 12 through 13, the writer reminds us and says, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, build one another up every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The antidote to hardness, the antidote to grumbling, the antidote to receiving the discipline of the Lord like that is learning to fight the fight of faith together. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go throughout the message. So with all of that in mind, please turn to Numbers chapter 10. We'll start at at that chapter and work our way back to the end of chapter 14 today. At the beginning of chapter 10, you'll see that the hope was very high in Israel. I'm sure there was quite a buzz among the people as the Lord had put their ranks in order and prepared them for departure. They had been there for a long time, and now they were going into their destiny. Just before they set out, the Lord commanded them to do one more thing and said, I want you to craft two silver trumpets. And then he gave them instructions for how to use these trumpets to to call the people either to gather together or to set out or to settle down or to go to war or to declare a feast or declare the first day of a month or to declare when burnt offerings and peace offerings were offered. And praise be to God, his people uh, obeyed his command. They created the trumpets and when they were done, the Lord gave the word and the journey toward the promised land actually began. 
They sat at the foot of that mountain for a year. We have sat at the foot of this mountain for a couple of months as we've been working through these texts. And now Israel is actually marching out. The cloud lifted from the tabernacle and set out on the 20th day of the second month, a little bit over a year after they had left Egypt. And the good news is that Israel precisely obeyed what the Lord commanded. Do you remember in previous chapters, he told them, I want you to march in a particular way. I want Judah and his tribes to go out, and then Reuben and his tribes to go out, and then the Levites to go out, and then the rest of the other tribes to go out. Israel obeyed the commands of the Lord. The hopes were high. The destiny was close. It was an exciting time. Moses made sure that the people's eyes stayed fixed on the Lord as they thought about their hope. Look at chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So at the leadership of Moses, the people's eyes were fixed on the Lord, who was their guide, who was their protector, who was their shield, who was their power, who was their husband, who was their father and their God. Unfortunately, this state of mind, this way of looking at life didn't last for very long. We don't know how much time passed between the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11, but it could not have been very much time, no more than a a day or two or a week, probably at the very most. And already the people were grumbling to the Lord about their plight in the wilderness. They had issues out there. You've seen Saudi Arabia. It didn't change. It's not a lot different now than it was then. Imagine walking around with a a one and a half or two million people in the desert of Saudi Arabia. There were difficulties there. Let's be honest about it. But they began to grumble and complain against the Lord and he was not happy about this at all. You'll see in the first few verses of chapter 11 that the Lord in fact sent fire among the people to the outlying parts of the camp, which probably means that he took some of their lives. The Lord was so disturbed by the grumblings of the people that he likely took some of their lives. Beloved, see it. God hates grumbling. He hates it. He will at times take life because of it. That's how God feels. The people, the fear of the Lord struck their hearts and so they asked Moses, so please cry out to the Lord and he did cry out to the Lord and the Lord caused the fire to cease but the people never forgot. And they named that place Tabra because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. You can see that in verse three. But they didn't learn their lesson. This grumbling was enough in itself, but some rabble-rousers among them who may have been foreigners, they may not have been foreigners, we don't really know, but what we do know is that they began to complain about the manna, and they began to spread their complaint like wildfire. You know how grumbling works, don't you? You know how this works. I have a problem with someone, or I have a problem with something, and so I go and I look for a willing ear, and you may not be the one, you may not be the one, you may not be the one, but finally I find someone who will listen to me, and I grumble, and they listen, and then we grumble to two more, and then we grumble to four more, and eight more, and ten more, and twenty more, and a hundred more, and pretty soon the people of Israel are grumbling. Especially when the grumbling is founded on a real issue that the people are facing. It was difficult to live in that desert only on manna. It was difficult. God knew it was difficult. But now the rabble-rousers took a real thing and stirred it up in a really, really, really unhelpful way. And God was not happy. Look at chapter 11, verse 10. It says that the anger of the Lord blazed hotly at the people for this. God was very, very angry at them. Why? Because they were his people. He had been so gracious to them for centuries upon centuries. And even with this particular generation, he had done so much for them. These are the people who saw the ten plagues with their own eyes. We read it in the Bible. They saw it with their eyes. These are the people who watched him part the Red Sea. They walked through an ocean, beloved. Can you imagine walking across Lake Malax on dry land with two million people? They saw it with their eyes. They saw God provide bread from heaven. They saw God provide water in the desert where there was no water. They saw God's glory on the mountain. They saw his, they heard his voice thunder from the top. They received his law. They received his mercy. He had been so good to them. How now could they turn their back on him? That's why God was so angry. You would be too. I would be too. 
They were again betraying the Lord. They were so sold out to their strong cravings for food that they took their eyes off of the God who provides food. They let their self-centered cravings overcome their faith-filled way of life. And in this way, they began to grumble, and the Lord was very, very, very displeased. Moses also heard the weeping of the people, but he actually had compassion. He was walking and talking with them. He knew it was difficult out there, and so he listened to their burdens, and the more he listened, the more burdened he became, and he finally became so burdened by the ministry and the reality of what was happening to these people that he went to the Lord, I believe it's in verse 15, uh, yeah, chapter 11, verse 15, and he asked that God would even take his life. Can you imagine that? I've been active in ministry just about since the day I was born again, and I've been in full-time ministry for almost 15 years now. There's days when the burden of ministry has been very heavy on me, and I've wanted to quit. I've wanted to fly away. I've wanted to go to some mountain with just me and Jesus and leave it at that. But I've never asked the Lord, God, please take my life. And that's where Moses was. He felt the deep and abiding pain of the people, and, and he just could not handle it. He was not the ultimate deliverer of the people of God that would eventually be sent. And so, praise God, by the way, that the Lord doesn't always give us what we ask for in prayer. Amen? It would be tragic if God answered every prayer that we prayed. And in this case, the Lord said, I hear your, your pain, brother, but you're going to have to endure <laughs> You're going to have to keep living. You're going to have to go through this pain, not over this pain, not around it, not under it. You're going to have to go straight through it. But I will give you some help, so gather for me 70 elders, and when the time is right, I will take some of the spirit that I've put on you, and I will put it on them, and together all of you all can share the burden of leading the people of Israel. And then he also told Moses, he said essentially, all right, the people want meat, I'll give them meat. You tell them tomorrow, you tell them today to consecrate themselves because tomorrow I'm going to send them a lot of meat. It won't be enough for one day or two days. It will be enough for a month. And they're going to eat so much of this stuff that, that it's going to be coming out their nostrils. It's a lovely metaphor, isn't it? You're going to have quail coming out of your nostrils and they're going to come to loathe what they have craved so fiercely. Why in the world was God responding toward his people like this? Why was he that angry? Why did he want to like stuff the meat in their mouth so that it came out of all the rest of the parts of their face? Why? Because he was wiser than they were. He had plans and purposes for them. Do you think that God was unaware that his people were hungry and weary? He knew what they were going through and he had purposes for their hunger. I thought of two as I prayed about it this week. Two reasons why God deliberately wanted to weaken his people physically. It wasn't going to be forever. It was going to be for a season. And he did it on purpose. Why? Number one, to, to display to the world that God displays his strength through the weakness of people. He wanted to show the world that a famished nation could conquer the greatest, strongest nations of the world if the Lord their God is on their side. A weak person plus God is stronger than anything on the earth. God wanted to show this to the nations. God made them weak for a purpose. He knew what he was doing. He was not out of control. He had not lost his compassion. He did this on purpose for the glory of his name and the eventual joy of their souls. Can you imagine the joy they would have had if they would have just submitted to God and watched him conquer nations even though they were so tired they felt like they couldn't walk 10 yards? And they realized, wait a second, I don't have to walk 10 yards. God is fighting for us. This was God's plan. He also wanted to teach them the lesson of the manna that we saw before, again and again and again. Men and women do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. You can hear these words in church, beloved, but how will you ever know them unless God literally takes the food out of your mouth for a season? Until he deprives you of things that you crave and depend upon, how will you know that your true life is in him and in his word? God was trying to teach his people. He was trying to develop them as a nation so that they would stand as a, a prince among nations, if you will, and say to the world, we live by the word of God. We live by the presence of God alone. 
But instead of trusting their father and living by faith in him, the people set their eyes on their circumstances. They set their eyes on the cravings of their bellies and they insulted God. They castigated him. They impugned him with this crazy question. Why did we even come out of Egypt? Just hard to understand how they could ask a question like that after everything they had been through. That's why God was so angry. That's why he was so ready to stuff meat into their face so that it came out of their nose. Moses took God at his word as he always did, but even he had some doubts. He's like, Lord, I get it, but where the heck is all this meat going to come from? You're talking about a million and a half to two million people. We don't have enough lambs and sheep and goats and bulls and all that for this, so where's it all going to come from? The Lord gently rebuked Moses, and then the Lord did, in fact, take some of his spirit and put it upon the other 70 elders so that they prophesied and already began to bear the burden along with him. The next day, the Lord did exactly as he had promised. He caused an east wind to blow up, and he caused so much quail to come into that area that the Bible says it was piled high a day's journey in every single direction. So I know some of you like to hunt quail, but I bet you you cannot imagine a day when so much quail comes into Elk River that you could walk a full day in any direction. It'd be quail, 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 quail everywhere. It was amazing, and the people were very happy. By the way, we know for a fact that this happens. Even to this day, the quail love to settle on that part of the peninsula where Israel was. They fly over the, 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 the sea there, and then they're tired, and they stop and they rest. So when an east wind comes blowing in the direction of the people, it just blew a whole gob of these things right to where Israel was. And they began uh, gathering these things in great abundance, and they ate and ate and ate. But the Bible says that the fierce anger of the Lord broke out against them, and as they ate, many of them died that day. It doesn't say in this part of the text how many died, but many of them died that day. Now, you might say, well, the reason they died is because of unsafe cooking practices. It really wasn't the Lord. It was, it was, it was that. But I would just say to you that that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God caused a plague to come out among the people as they ate the quail. Please slow down here and understand that's how God feels about grumbling. That's how he hates grumbling. He is actually willing to let some of his people lose their life on this earth because of grumbling. As we sort of gain a picture of who our Father is and how He is. We know that He's merciful. We've been seeing this chapter upon chapter, book after book in the Bible. It's true. And none of that has changed here. But in His mercy, there does come a time when He says, enough is enough. And now you're going to know my discipline. And He hates grumbling so much that He is willing to actually take life. The people called that place Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of craving, They had allowed their strong and fleshly cravings to overcome their faith in God, and now they got what they wanted. They got it all the way. And so, again, they named that place so that they would not forget. What's the lesson here for us? A lot could be said. A whole sermon could be had right here. But let me just simply say this. As we journey as a church, now I'm talking about us as Glory of Christ Fellowship The Lord's doing some incredible things among us, as I said last week and tried to help you see last week. But as we journey as a church into what the Lord has for us, we have to learn to fight the fight of faith together and be content with the things that God provides along the way. He may not, he will not always provide in the way that we want him to, in the way that we think he should. And so like Israel, we can become discontent and rabble-rousers can raise up among us and begin grumbling one and then another and one and then another and one and then another until the whole congregation is grumbling, not against the leaders, but against the Lord himself. We could actually come to a place where we're impugning the one who shed his blood for us, and that will not be good. That will not be good. And so let us take heed. Let us beware. One example of this that came to mind as I was praying about this week, I thought, Lord, what's a, what's a practical example of, of what this could look like in our church? I, I thought of this building that we're meeting in here now, the Hanky. We've been here for four and a half years now. It's hard for me to believe how much time has flown by, but four and a half years we've been worshiping in this place, and it is a kind of manna for us. It's difficult to root and establish a church in an established city without a 24-7 space where we can conduct our ministries, and sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it feels like living on manna. I talked to a pastor friend of mine, a church planter in Rogers the other day. I happened to run into him. 
and I asked him how long they had been without a building. They're now in a building for, they've been there a couple years now. And I asked him how long it had been, and, and he said it was 10 years of being in rented facilities before they were able to get into a building. And their facility was much less useful than this one. They were in the, the elementary school down there in Rogers. Not the new one, but the old one. And it wasn't a real helpful spot. And they were there for 10 years before the Lord brought them into their land, so to speak. And so he understands, as we understand, that it's difficult and it's challenging to grow up a body of Christ in a place like this. It's hard. It's hard. Sometimes it's like living on manna. But here's the deal. The Lord has plans for us. He has plans for this church. I was just thinking the other day of the moment that he called me to come here and be pastor, and I have no doubt whatsoever that he did that and that he planted this church. So having the confidence that God did this, I also have the confidence that he has plans for us. Part of his plan is for us to be in a rented facility. Why? Because churches don't live on properties and buildings alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Amen? We don't live on, on big numbers and staff and budgets and all the external stuff that impresses people. We live on the Spirit of God and we need to learn this lesson well and to be satisfied in what we have in God alone before He will hand us over things that will be useful for ministry. Because if that order gets wrong and we get into a building too soon, what will happen is we'll make an idol of the building and forget the Lord. We'll live for the bu- building and forget the reason we have the building, Jesus, Right? We need to fix our eyes on Jesus and be satisfied in Him. And when we are, someday, He'll give us a center for operations. He'll do that. I have no doubt about that. But for now, it's manna. For now, it's it's manna. Some of you have come and talked to me about how you feel about this place and some of the difficulties that are here. I want you to know, I don't consider any of that grumbling. Some of you may be grumbling, but I'm totally unaware of it. Thanks for keeping it hidden from me. But several of you have talked to me about some of the real difficulties, and I agree. I agree. And I want you to hear me say, I do not consider one thing anyone has said to me grumbling. Dealing with issues is not grumbling. It's not grumbling. All I'm trying to do here is stretch for some example of how this text could apply to our church. And what I know is as we move forward, it's possible that we could become discontent with the provision of the Lord and begin to grumble. And I just don't want to see that happen because God has greater things for us. Amen? He has plans for us. He has purposes for us. Even in the things that he gives us that are not full provision, even he looks at that and says, that's not going to work for very long. He knows. He's not unaware, but in the midst of it, he has plans. He has plans. So, beloved, we have to stoke the fire of faith in one another. We have to fight the fight of faith together. We have to remind each other to fix our eyes upon Jesus and give thanks, give thanks, give thanks for everything he has provided. The more we learn to give thanks, the more we will be content with his provision at church and at home and at work and at school and everywhere. And the more we give thanks, the more our lives will fill with faith that someday God will provide a better thing. So the antidote, again, help one another fight the fight of faith together day by day by day. Turning our attention back to Moses in chapter 12, things went from bad to worse for him. As if the people grumbling was not enough. Now his own siblings turned against him and they used some lame excuse about his wife as an opportunity to undermine his authority and place in Israel. And they were actually trying to acquire his position of leadership is what they were really trying to do. This was a coup d'etat. This was a hostile takeover is what was going on. And the Lord saw it and he was very, very displeased with what he saw. And so he called Moses and Miriam and Aaron and he said, listen, come out to me at the tent. The cloud of the Lord descended upon it and these three people walked into the cloud of the Lord and into the presence of the Lord where God rebuked Miriam and Aaron very strongly for what they did. He said to them, he said, you're right about this, that I do speak through people other than Moses. You're right about that, but you're wrong about this. Moses has a place that's unique above all other people, and don't ever forget that. I, 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 I speak to the prophets in this way or that, but with Moses, I speak face to face. And the Bible actually says here that Moses beheld the form of God. I believe that means that Moses was seeing a, 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 a Jesus, a Christophany, they call it. I think Moses actually saw the form of Jesus. 
And he spoke with the Lord face to face to face. So yes, God used other people. Of course he used other people. But Moses had a unique place and God put him in that place. So then Miriam and Aaron, the Lord said, how is it that you did not fear to come against those that the Lord himself had appointed? Don't you have a brain? Don't you see that when you come against my appointed, my anointed, you come against me? It's not about the person. I am the one who chose Moses. I am the one who opened up the doors of intimacy to him like this. You are impugning me. You are insulting me. You are not insulting Moses in this sense. Aaron and Miriam had no answer. They were just like Job. They were totally silenced before the Lord. They knew that what they did was wrong. Praise God, they had a sense of repentant heart about them. Praise God for that. The cloud of the Lord lifted off the tabernacle and they look at Miriam and she was covered from head to toe in leprosy and some kind of skin disease that made her look as white as snow. Why did God particularly punish her? Because she was the ringleader. She was the one who came to her brother Aaron and grumble, 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 grumble. He bought into it and now they grumble against their brother and try to take over his position. So she paid the price. Do you remember last week uh, or a couple of weeks ago, I told you when the order's out of whack, the blessings held back. You remember that? God had established an order. He had leaders. There was Moses. There was Aaron. There were others. Miriam disrupted that and tried to put herself in the top place. She used Aaron to get to the top. Make no mistake about it. She was playing power games here. She was screwing up the order of God and he said, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. So when the order was out of whack, the blessing was held back. Two things happened. First, Moses prayed for Miriam, and God did spare her life. It it was pretty apparent to Aaron and Moses that God meant to take Miriam's life. And maybe he would have. But Moses prayed, and God relented. But then he said, yes, but she must go outside the camp for seven days where she will await her time of being clean again, where she's able to come back into the camp of God. So you have like a queen in Israel. You have one of the most prominent people in the whole nation of Israel. Everybody knows her. Everybody looks to her. She's famous. She's well-known, all this stuff. She is shamed by being put out of the camp for seven days, and the whole entire forward movement of the plan of God is stopped for a week. When the, when the order gets out of whack, the blessing is held back. They were held back for seven days waiting for the Lord to finish disciplining this this woman of God. Praise God she learned her lesson. Praise God Aaron learned his lesson. Praise God they had repentant hearts. Praise God for that. But for us, we need to learn this lesson, beloved. We need to learn. When God says this is the order, he means it. And when God puts particular people in the places of order, he did that. And to come against those people is to come against the Lord, their God. So what's the lesson here for us? Well, I think it's pretty straightforward. It's what I just said. In the church and in the home, God has given an order. God has said to appoint elders and then then deacons, and he's raised up other leaders in the life of the church. At home, he said that fathers are to be the heads of the household and to play the role of Christ. And then mothers, they're second, but they're a very close second. They're so incredibly close that in some ways they're indistinguishable. And so children, you must honor your father and your mother. You are not allowed to disrespect your mother and honor your father. That's not right. God has given them both a position and we must honor not just the position, but the actual people God has put in those positions. And when we come against and impugn and seek to undermine and displace God's chosen ones, we impugn God himself. It's not mainly about the people. It's mainly about the Lord. And so be careful, beloved. Be careful when you begin to play with the order God has established. Do not grumble. Do not grumble. Do not come against. Do not plot against people. It's wrong and God hates it. God is very angry when he sees things like that and he disciplines severely. Now, I do want to say that it, it is okay to bring up issues in the life of a church or in the life of a family that have to do with the leaders of the church or the leaders in the family. If you have a family where no one can tell dad they're upset with him, then you have kind of an unhealthy family, right? It's not a good environment where we can't talk honestly about what's going on in the life of a a family or a church. If you have a church where no one can come to the pastors or deacons or other leaders and say, hey, I see this problem with you and the way you're conducting your ministry or this or that. If we can't talk about these things, then we've got real problems. 
So I don't want to be communicating that we want a kind of atmosphere where no one's allowed to say anything, just keep your lips zipped and follow the Lord. But, there, but there's a way to go about these things, beloved. There's a heart with which to go about these things. So here's my advice to you. Either at home or at church, let's say that, uh, that some issues arise in your heart about a person. Here's what I do. Not just what I would do, but here's what I do. I don't allow myself to descend into grumbling. I really discipline, smack my flesh. I do not allow myself to to go there in my mind and imagine things that are either true or untrue. I discipline myself to go before the Lord and I give thanks to God for the person that I'm having a difficulty with. I give thanks. I pray for them. I pray for their blessing. And I thank God for everything I can think of. I learned, I didn't come up with this, I learned this from my mentor, Doug Goodnow. He was like a father to me for a number of years. And he told me, Charlie, when you have a problem with someone, and at that day, I had a problem with someone, and I called up my spiritual father, and I start whining, 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 complaining, grumbling, yada, 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 yada. He's like, okay, you done? Yes, I'm done. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Go to the throne of God and give thanks to God for every single thing you can think of for the next 30 minutes for that person. Don't stop thanking God for them. And you know what happens? When you thank God for them, all the grumbling junk melts away and any issues that are real, they remain. So what I would say is go before the throne of God, pray and pray and pray, and the things that still remain in your heart, then go in a spirit of love, in a spirit of hope, in a spirit of unity and talk about the issues. Talk about the issues. It's okay to talk about issues. It's not okay to impugn God's leaders. It's not okay to impugn God. So the way to root that junk out of our hearts is prayer. Jesus knows. He knows. He knows the real stuff. He knows the stuff that's not real. He knows where the devil's at work. He knows where his Holy Spirit is at work convicting. So pray, 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 pray. Together, let us fight the fight of faith and exhort one another to fix our eyes upon Jesus. And as we do that, we'll see the horizontal things in the way that they should be seen. This leads us finally to the tragic story of Numbers 13 and 14. One of the most tragic stories in the Bible becomes a theme from here all the way to the end of the Bible. These two chapters are very important for the story of God that is developing all the way to the book of Revelation. While all the preceding things were transpiring, the people were in fact moving closer and closer to the promised land. And now in chapter 13, we see that they're camped just on the southern edge of it and they're ready to invade it. So get this picture in your mind. The, the original plan was not to come in from the east and cross the Jordan. That was not the original plan. The original plan was to come up from the south where there is no water or any obstacle like that and just go straight in and take the land. That's the way God had led them and that's what they were just about to do. But we read in Deuteronomy chapter 1 that the people first came and asked Moses, hey, can we, can we send some spies into the land before we, let, before we launch an all-out assault here and just kind of see what we're up against? And Moses prayed about it and felt good about that. So the Lord told them, you'll see in Numbers 13 there, it said that the Lord told them to send spies into the land, one leading man from each tribe, which they did. And and Numbers actually names the men who went into the land. Moses asked them to accomplish a number of things. And over a period of 40 days, they did every single thing he had asked them to accomplish, including taking the risk of going into someone's property and cutting off some of the fruit of the land. So many grapes that they had to put it on a pole. One guy had it on his shoulder. The other guy had the other side on his shoulder. And they walked the fruit out of the land. That that was a risky thing to do, to go onto somebody's property and, and take fruit like that. But to this point, things are looking good. The spies go into the land and they obey in everything that Moses said. And now they come back to give their report. And here's what they reported. The land is flowing with milk and honey and it's fruitful, it's fertile, it will be great for the future. The land is awesome, but here is the problem. The people there are strong, their cities are fortified, and worst of all, the descendants of Anak are there. These people were really tall, really tall, really big, really strong, really well-fed, really uh, well-suited for war. And the worst news of all is that they are situated on the southernmost part of the population of Israel. So what does that mean? That means as Israel goes up to take the land, they've got to take on the giants before they take on anybody else. All the other people, the spies probably thought we could take them. But the one people they wondered, oh no, can we take them or not? They're the ones we got to go up against first. And so the people heard this news and they trembled. They were deeply frightened. 
But Caleb, one of my great heroes, who, by the way, Caleb was the leader from the tribe of Judah. That's awesome. He's the leader of the tribe of praise, the tribe of the king, the tribe of Jesus Christ. Caleb was the one to stand up and say, brothers and sisters, calm yourselves down. Calm yourselves down. The land is good. The people are big, but we can take them. That's what he said, to put it in the vernacular. Why? Because God is with us. His opponents, however, stood up and spoke again in fear rather than faith, and they stirred up the people to be very afraid of the Anakites, and the people were persuaded, and they came to say that they wanted to kill Moses and kill Aaron, and they would rather themselves have either died in Egypt or die in the, the, the desert in which they had been. The people were serious about this, They actually plotted to kill Moses on the spot and all of his confidants, which would have been Aaron and all of his key leaders. And uh, they were going to appoint other leaders to turn them around and take them back to Egypt, all right? This is a serious situation. Again, in my years of ministry, I've had some people upset at me. No one has ever said, we're going to kill you now and we're going to appoint other leaders to take us in another direction. That's a serious situation. And so Moses and Aaron fall to their face before the Lord and before the people. Joshua and Caleb, they tear their clothes and they cry out in faith again that the land is good and the Lord is able to give it over to them. And if you look at chapter 14, verses 8 through 9, they said only, do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. These big, huge giants, they're nothing more than a meal for us. Why? Because their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us, so do not fear them. Oh, they were so right. And if only the people would have listened, but they refused to listen and instead sought to stone all of them to death, including Joshua and Caleb now. And they probably would have succeeded if the Lord himself had not intervened, but he did. The Lord allowed his glory to appear at the tent of the tabernacle exactly at that time and he spoke in the sight and the hearing of all the people in verses 11 and 12 and he said this, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. That's how God feels about grumbling, beloved. He does not take it lightly. Moses, though, interceded for the people as he had before. He went back to to Exodus 34 and said, O Lord, remember that you're a God merciful and gracious, and please forgive this people their sins. And by his massively merciful heart, he listened to Moses' prayer, and the Bible says he pardoned the people for their sins. But then he also swore this in verses 21 and following. He said, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, not one of those who has seen my glory and seen my signs and yet tested me these ten times, not one of them will see the land of promise. Not one of them will come into the place that I have prepared. He's talking about the warriors that he numbered at the beginning of Numbers. Everybody who was, every man who was 20 years and older who could fight. He's talking about them. They were charged to go take the land by faith in God, but they lived by fear. And now the Lord said, I will disinherit you from this land. You will not ever come into the blessing that you desire. Instead, you're going to have to live in this desert that you despise for 40 years. One year for every day that you are spying in the land. Once this word from the Lord was issued, the leaders who brought the bad report actually died of a plague before the Lord there. Again, I just want us to stop and pause and ponder, not just in this moment, but in this week, how God feels about grumbling. He's literally willing to take life because of this. They died before the presence of the Lord. Other leaders then went, oh no, We've made a huge mistake. We should have listened to the Lord. We should have believed. We should have obeyed. We should have taken the land. So now they rise up, they gather troops, and they tell Moses, we changed our mind. We're going to go. We're going to do it. We're going to take the land. And Moses said, it's too late, friends. God has already made up his mind. He has spoken, and there's no turning back. The Lord is merciful and gracious, but there comes a time when he will decide to discipline us, and there's no reversing his word. That time can come, and that time came for these people. They didn't believe it. 
And so they walked in disobedience. They went up to fight against the other people in the land of Israel, and they were defeated roundly. And those who survived came back to the camp, and they commenced their 40-year stay in a land that God had not prepared for them, but now forced them to live in. Beloved, the Lord is merciful and gracious, and he did, in fact, forgive their sins. The Bible says, you can see in those verses, it says, word for word, he pardoned them. He pardoned them. So how then are we to understand what happens in this story? If he pardoned them, how do, we, how do we make sense of what came next? Well, I would just put it this way. This generation of Israel will not be in hell. God pardoned them in an ultimate sense. God will not forever and ultimately revoke his blessing from them. The deal is still on. The, the, their destiny is still there. They will be with us around the throne. I believe we may have a chance to meet some of the people who fell in the desert. God pardoned them. And if those words aren't true, then God is a liar. God is not a liar. Those words are true. Therefore, God pardoned them. He pardoned them. But listen, please listen carefully. Just because God pardons us in an ultimate way does not mean that he will not discipline us on this earth because he will. He will. The discipline they received was an earthly discipline that lasted their entire lives. That's how displeased God was with what they had done. So yes, ultimately, they will be in the glorious presence of God. I believe that with all of my heart. And yes... God disciplined them for the remainder of their lives and on this earth they knew very little joy for the next 40 years. So then what of us? How does that apply to us? Well, just like this generation of Israel, our eternal security is not in question, at least not for those who have truly believed in Christ and embraced him by grace through faith. Nothing we do once we are in Christ can ultimately snatch us out of Christ's hands. But just like this generation of Israel, we can sin in such a way that God will punish us for the remainder of our lives. If we had more time, I would tell you a story or two of people that I know that this has happened to. They have sinned in severe ways, and they will pay a lifelong price for their sin. In love, the Lord will discipline his children. Sometimes he will do it very, very severely. In this case, he did it for an entire generation. Let it sink in. A whole generation of people died because they grumbled against the Lord. That's how he felt. He pardoned them, and he disciplined them both things, both things. Having said that, though, I want to say that the Lord has better things in store for us, and I say this not on my own authority, but on the authority of, of Hebrews chapter 3. I've been in the process of memorizing Hebrews, and, and just as Jesus would have it, I was working on memorizing chapter 3 right when I was working on numbers in this section of numbers, and chapter 3 of Hebrews is about this section of numbers. It's almost like God planned it or something like that. The writer of Hebrews says to us as a people, he says, don't fall into their destiny. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't fall away. Don't let an evil, unbelieving heart take root in you. Don't let the deceitfulness of sin harden you. But instead, exhort one another. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Walk by faith in Him. Walk by hope in Him. Give Him thanks for everything. Give Him thanks for your circumstances. Give Him thanks for your leaders in your life. Give Him thanks for the obstacles that we face because in God we can overcome for the glory of his name. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants for us. And he knows God has good plans for those who will give themselves to thanksgiving rather than to grumbling. And so that's my hope for us as a people. I've been praying all week long, first for myself and then for the church. Lord, please root the, the poisonous weeds of grumbling out of us and replace it with the plentiful, fruitful vine of thanksgiving. Oh, may God do that for us. May he make us a faith-filled, thankful people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. As I said at the beginning, it is sometimes like a surgeon's scalpel, but you only wound in order to heal. You only expose in order to transform. And so I thank you, Father, that you have plans to prosper us and not to harm us. I pray that you would do your work in us, Father. I pray that you would kill every weed of grumbling in our hearts and that you would prosper every fruit of your spirit in our hearts. Oh God, please cause us to rise up and obediently walk with you into the promised land that you have prepared for this little church. We love you, Father, and give you our thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.